if you will, if you'll please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to be starting a brand new series on Paul's letter to the Romans, which I'm personally incredibly excited about because uh, that this is the book that God used in my life uh, to bring about radical change in my life. And I know that this is the prayer that many of us have right now. You are sitting there and you're praying, God, would you come and would you bring breakthrough in my life? God, would you come and would you do brand new things in my life? Would you awaken me to who you are, what you want me to see about you? God, would you do a brand new thing in me? And not only me, but Father, would you do a brand new thing and bring about revival nationally? God, I understand that that, take, that has to come through me first, but God, would you come and do something nationally? So we are praying really, really big things. And throughout history, Romans is the book that God has used probably more than any other book to bring about the revival, the renewal, the breakthrough that so many of us are longing for today. I mean, you think about this, like Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, like this is the book that he credits for launching the Protestant Reformation. Right? I mean, this is the book that he credits for launching the Protestant Reformation, which is where we stand today. But he talks about it in one of his writings. But he says, before his study of the book of Romans, he always believed that a righteous life was required in order for one to be saved, which isn't entirely wrong, right? It's just incomplete. But he says this, he says, he grew up hating God because of that. And he grew up hating God and hating the call of righteousness because it required him to do something that he was not able to do. It required him to be someone he was not able to be. And so he says, even as an impeccable monk, I was never able to attain the standard of righteousness, which God always called me to. And so I hated him. And he says, he murmured against him daily. But then he writes this. He says, I started reading the book of Romans and I get to verse 17 in chapter one, which reads for in it, meaning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that is a righteousness that is from faith and for faith. He says, it was then that I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which God justifies us by faith and through his great mercy and through his grace. Afterward, I felt like I was reborn, he says. Having gone through open doors into paradise, I finally broke through. Previously, I hated the expression, the righteousness of God, but now I regard it as my dearest and most comforting companion. But it was there, like, in, in the early chapters of Romans, that, like, church, the, literally the Protestant Reformation is born, this place in which we stand, where we boldly declare by faith that it is by God's grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, that we, that we stand on that ground right there. And, and church, it's not just him, right? Like, this has been the testimony from the beginning of time. Before it was uh, Martin Luther, it was Augustine, the fourth century bishop of Hippo. If you know anything about his story, before Christ, he was a self-professed womanizer, kind of like to party a little bit, if you're ready into those stories, it gets a little bit crazy. Uh, but it was listening to a sermon on the book of Romans where God finally got a hold of his life. But he talks about it like this. He says this. He says, I was twisting and I was turning in my chair when I was listening to the sermon be preached. When I got home, I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so I took the book of Romans, I opened it up and I read chapter 13. And when my eyes lit up, It read this, it said, not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lust in its flesh. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once with the last words of the sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of my debt, all the shadows of my doubt were quickly dispelled. 
And church, like I said earlier, like this is my own personal story too. Church, like when Romans is read and Romans is understood and people dive into the depths of the gospel, like lives actually change. I've told you guys many times my own personal story, but I came to faith very early on. And it was my sophomore year in high school that God got a hold of my affections. I came back from a youth retreat over spring break. I was on fire for the Lord. I, I wanted to devour uh, everything in the word of God. And so I came home and I asked my parents, how I should study the Word of God. My mom was a Bible study fellowship teacher. She quickly taught me homiletics, which is a great way to, to study the Word of God in such a way that you can teach it. And she says, I want you to start with Romans. And so that's what I did the rest of the year. I just devoured the book of Romans, going through it word by word. And I remember sitting there, and the Holy Spirit would not let me move past Romans 1.16, which says very specifically, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I remember reading that verse and just meditating on the word of God going like, that is me. My entire life, I've been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I came to faith early on and I've never stood up for my faith in junior high, in the high school years, wherever I go. Like that is me. I'm living in shame and condemnation, ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I remember meditating upon God's word. It was there while I was studying the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit came in and gave me a courage and a confidence to walk boldly in the faith for the rest of my days. Shortly after graduation, I started doing a youth internship in Evansville, Indiana with my older brother, Stu, who was a youth pastor at that time. And I went up to his church and I started uh, leading a small group of freshmen uh, through the book of Romans and teaching it to them. Ten years ago, I'm sitting there back at Northwest Bible Church doing a ministry role there. And this guy named Sean walks up to me and he comes up and he says, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I was a freshman in that Bible study you did so long ago teaching us through Romans. Like God used that Bible study, the book of Romans, to bring new life to me. Like, it literally changed my life. And I was like, what are you doing here? He says, I'm here at Dallas Theological Seminary training for the ministry. But it began back there in that study. God illuminated my heart and awakened me to the hope of the gospel while studying the book of Romans. Church, point of the matter is like there is power in this book. Like the breakthrough and revival happens when men and women open up this book and we prayerfully study it and we say, Father, would you come and would you speak to me through the book of Romans? And so if you are sitting here right now, two thirds of the way through 2020, and you're sitting there going, okay, God, I need you to come in and do something into my life. Like, I need breakthrough. I need revival to take place inside of me. I need you to breathe life inside of me. I'm in despair. I'm in depression. I'm not seeing you as you actually are. God, I need you to come do something brand new in me. Also in our country, also all around the world, in our church, the universal church, the local church. But God, I need you to come do something. If that is how you pray, and that is what you are longing for God to do, then Romans is the book for you. And my hope and my prayer for us this year, probably the next 25, 30 weeks as we go through this study together, is that as we jump into this, the Word of God together, that you and I will develop deep roots that are firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he will bring about the breakthrough that we've been praying for for so long. So again, if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Uh, again, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, we're going to get into a little bit more context here in the weeks ahead, and we're going to go a little bit deeper in it. This is going to be very much intro material today. Um, but again, if you're not familiar with the book at all, I keep saying it's a book. We talk about books of the Bible. This is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Rome uh, somewhere around 57 AD. And it's written in response to a lot of the difficulties that they were facing as a relatively new church that was trying to figure out how to do a unified church life uh, in a gathering of believers that was comprised mostly of Jews and Gentiles. And so if you thought that having unity with believers today in 21st century Dallas, America was 
was difficult across the political spectrum, maybe across socioeconomic divide, given the different ways that we think, the different people that we follow online. If you thought that that was difficult, like it is nothing compared to trying to be unified and together as a brand new body of believers in the first century. But it's exactly what they're doing. And so Paul's response is to go in depth about the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they could be unified on the main thing. And so that's what I want to do for, for us today. All I want to do is I want to look at the greeting here, which is the first five verses in this chapter. And what I want you to notice here is the vision and the mission that Paul sets out here from the very beginning, because it's very, very similar to how we talk about things around here as well. But here's what he says, beginning in verse one, and forgive this because it's a long run-on sentence right here, but here's what he says. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, here it is, to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, if you're a note taker, here's what I want you to do. Maybe you've got two different highlighters or you want to circle or underline things. I want you to make a delineation here, but I want you to highlight both of these statements right here. To bring about the obedience of faith, that's the mission, right? Circle that one right there. To bring about the obedience of faith. Paul, why were you given grace? Why were you called to be an apostle? An apostle is one who's been sent out by God on purpose with a message, right? Why were you given grace, Paul? And why were you called to be an apostle? He says this, to bring about the obedience of the faith. That's what I was called to do. That's what we are called to do, to bring about the obedience of faith. That is the mission. A mission always describes what you are supposed to be doing. And very, very clearly from the onset, Paul knows this is my calling to bring about the obedience of the faith. Not only in me as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who is called to obey him, but to help other people do the exact same thing. Right, we talk about it like this around the church. We exist as a church body here to love all, but to help all follow Jesus. And so it's very, very similar language right here. It's the same thing, right? Obedience to Jesus Christ is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus is what it means to be a disciple. And so that's what we strive to do here at Dallas Bible Church. Why? For the sake of his name among the nations. That is the vision that he lines up here. For the sake of Jesus' name being elevated, being glorified, being worshiped, him being served all around the world. And so from the very beginning, here's what I want you to do. Uh, and you may need to pause your, actually, I would encourage this. You may want to pause your, pause your screen for a little bit. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a moment. And close your eyes, wherever you may be. Maybe you're sitting there in your living room. You've got kids running around. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're a little quiet. But, maybe, but would you just take a moment and pause? Because I'm not going to be able to pause as long as you want to think about this. But would you think for a moment what the world would actually look like today if all the nations sang his praise? And just allow your mind, Father, like what would it look like if all the nations the overwhelming majority of the people on this planet recognize that you alone are God, that you alone are the one who spoke the world into existence, that you, are the one, you alone are the one who, who showed us the depth of your love and the sending of your son Jesus to come and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. What if the entire world sung his praise all the time? Like, can you imagine for a second what, the sound, what it would sound like if you walked out of your doors, maybe, and not even on a Sunday morning, but especially on a Sunday morning, 
And you heard the sounds of praise from people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation on this planet. And they are gathering the praise, the mighty and holy name of Jesus Christ all around the world. Like, what would that sound actually sound like? I mean, I'll tell you, this is one of the things that I missed the most from my sabbatical this year, but one of my favorite things to do on the sabbatical time is to get away from here and to go visit all the churches around our city. I mean, I love seeing what God is doing all around the city just as a healthy reminder that he doesn't need me, he doesn't need this particular gathering. God is gonna continue doing his work all around the world, but that is one of my favorite things to do is to go visit a variety of different churches and church. Like, so I'll do typically eight or nine churches every July, Meaning like I'll double up on Sunday morning. I'll do a couple services, sometimes even three services on a Sunday morning. But I love going and seeing diverse types of churches, black churches, brown churches, Asian churches, right? Conservative churches, charismatic churches, right? I'll go to Presbyterian churches, even Anglican churches. And I love going to these diverse gatherings just to see that, that God is working all around the world. And he's working in a million different types of personalities and different emphases and stuff like that. And in all these different gatherings, God is being glorified. I remember last year going to Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship and visiting Tony Evans Church. And I remember it was a completely different culture, but I was a couple minutes late and they locked the doors of the sanctuary because they were doing communion then. And that's what they do. The first 10, 15 minutes of the service, they lock the doors and they do communion. I remember being in Sudan one time and we're coming through and there was a giant gathering of believers that were all gathering outside of an oak tree. They were sitting underneath a giant oak tree in the middle of the Sudan, about a hundred believers. And I'm not kidding you, we went out there to worship Jesus and we sang songs for three hours in a row, praising the mighty and holy name of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to think about is what if those were not just tiny, small gatherings here and there? What if the sounds of his praise filled the heavens, surrounded the earth, so that his name was made famous all around the world? Can you imagine what that would be like? Church, like that's the vision that we're talking about right here. Like, that's the vision that we're talking about right here. I, I, that, that's it. The way that we talk about it here at Dallas Bible Church is we like to say, like, we want to be a multiplying mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace that brings joy to this city and glory to God. But that's who we want to be. That's how we talk about vision. We want to be a, a multiplying mission-minded family marked by God's grace, meaning we fully understand. We have been branded by his grace. We fully understand the amount of mercy and grace that he has given us that we may be in right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that we didn't earn anything ourselves. We want to be marked by that grace so, and, so that we can do things and we can worship and, and serve our city in such a way that brings joy to the city and glory to God. But church, like that's what we are all about. It is all about him. It's all about his name being lifted up, his name being glorified, the fame of Jesus' name above every other name. We want to see him lifted up everywhere we go. But what Paul's saying right here, church, is that there is a cost that is associated with that vision. There's a cost, there's a price to be paid to see his name be lifted up high all around the world. And this is where it gets really, really tricky for us because we talk about vision and we think about what that could be like. And those are the things that are easy to celebrate. Father, would you come and would you be glorified all around the world? Like, no one's gonna disagree with that. We all pray for that. Father, be lifted up, be praised, be, be, be lifted up high. Like we all love that. Like what believer does not wanna see uh, renewal and breakthrough come through in my life? in my family, in my nation. Like who does not want, doesn't want to see a repentance at the highest levels? Like all of us want to see unity and peace in the body of Christ. But here it is, church, like obedience is what it takes to see that vision through. 
I mean, that's exactly what he's saying in verse 5. Like, why was he given grace and apostleship, right? To bring about the obedience of the faith. Like, why was God giving him grace to bring about the obedience of the faith? Why? For the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. In other words, church, like, our obedience brings fame to his name all around the world. It's why Jesus says some of the really really radical and difficult things that he says. I mean, in Luke chapter 14, he's going to say this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yet, yes, even their own life, you cannot be my disciple, which obviously does not literally mean that you need to hate your family, your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your spouse, or even yourself. doesn't mean that you literally need to hate those things. But he is saying that our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ must come first, even before your own family. Your obedience to Jesus has to come first, even before the people that you're most, that are most easy to love. Like that's what he's saying right here. I mean, church, can you just think about how radical of a statement this actually is? I mean, this past, a few weeks back, Kat and I celebrated our 18th anniversary together as a couple. And I can honestly tell you, there's not one person on this planet that I would rather spend the rest of my life with. I enjoy her. I love her. We talk all the time. We challenge each other. We build each other up. We lift each other up. And what he's saying is that your love and your loyalty towards me, the Lord Jesus Christ, must come before your love and your loyalty to your spouse. I mean, I've got a family and brothers and sisters. I've got a mother-in-law that I live with that I actually love and enjoy and am grateful that she's here with us. I mean, I've got a son that I use for pretty much every single sermon example out there. And what Jesus is saying is that a disciple's love for him, our commitment to obey him, our commitment to follow him first, it has to be so strong that in comparison, it will seem like like it to other people that you hate the people that you are called to love the most, your own family. I'm thinking of the Heather Mercer and Dana Curry story that we talked about somewhere around a year ago, but it actually took place in 2001. And uh, when, I, when I shared it last year, uh, come to find I didn't know that they had actually been to Dallas Bible Church personally to come and share their story. But if you're not familiar with their story, Heather and Dana were both Baylor graduates uh, who were serving as missionaries in Afghanistan when the Taliban captured them and held them captive for 128 days in a row. And so shortly after they were released, Dateline came and they did this interview with Heather's mom um, where they pretty much, uh, they, they, they beefed up her mom's opposition to Heather's decision to be there in the first place. And so essentially they did this giant piece about how Heather's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ had divided the family. There had been all this tension and they basically made it sound like, okay, how in the world could such a rebellious daughter do this to her mother? Her mom didn't want her to go. She kind of got what she deserved or something like that. Heather writes about this in her book called Prisoners of Hope, and here's what she says about that experience. She says, we answered really hard questions posed by our families and friends. Extraordinary are the parents who don't balk at the idea of their child moving to a third world, war-ravaged, drought-stricken country, and in this case, a country serving as a hub for international terrorist activity. That we had decided to go as Christian aid workers to a country where a harsh, unpredictable regime severely curtailed religious freedom It gave most of our loved ones pause at best and otherwise prompted serious alarm. We were asked by everyone, aren't you being foolish for for making this decision? Why would you jeopardize your own safety? And I love how she responds next. She simply says this. She says, the simple fact is that God called us to go. And church, like, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about right here when he's saying, essentially, like, your obedience to me, it has to come before obedience to your family. Like, unless you hate your father, your brother, your sister, your mother, you cannot be a follower of mine. That's exactly what he's saying. Your obedience to me, it has to come before your natural obedience, your natural propensity to want to follow and be in line with the people that you're most called to love. I'm thinking of the lukewarm spouse 
that's all throughout our church and all throughout our community that's trying to keep things interesting in the marriage. And you're trying to follow and, on, and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're honestly at a crossroads going, Lord, like I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to honor him or honor her? Am I supposed to do what they want me to do for the sake of unity and peace in our marriage? Or am I supposed to follow you? And the question that's on the table is like, are you willing to follow Jesus before anything else? That's what he's saying right here. I'm thinking of the parents and I'm thinking of the families in our church that have been called to foster kids and how long it takes for sometimes both, both spouses to come into agreement on this thing and the tension that often is there. But typically, a lot of times, like, there will be one spouse that gets, a, that gets a calling. We need to be adopting. We need to be fostering or something like that. And it takes a while for the other. But I'm thinking of the, the, this faithful spouse that is just continuing to press the conversation. It's like, like, this is what God is leading us to do. And you keep waiting and you keep praying together. And you keep working together until it finally wait, works, wait, works its way out. I'm thinking of the, the, the couples in here. And, and think about how difficult it is when you know that God has called you to be much more generous than you are. But your spouse, the person that you love, the partner, the person that you're partnering with is a little bit more rigid and they're wanting you to pull back a whole lot more. Church, there is tension. There is tension in that thing and there is tension in this thing because your, your family's fear, it can keep you sidelined and their sin can, be quick, can quickly become your own. It's why Jesus is so emphatic about this statement. Like, like your family's fear can keep you sidelined. It can keep you from following him and their sin can quickly become your own. Like that's how it all works. I'm thinking of the public Christian leaders who are willing to compromise what the Bible clearly says about sexuality in order to accommodate their children's choices. I'm talking about the kids who will not follow a call from God upon their life because dad had a dream about the family business or mom was too afraid to let them go and to follow God's leading wherever that may be halfway around the world. Church, it's, it's the tension that you feel when your family and your friends, students, when your family and your friends are going one way online, going one way on, on at school, and Jesus is calling you to go the complete opposite direction. Church, that's what he's talking about right here. I'm thinking about my uh, friend's mother uh, who came to faith once they were already married. Her spouse did not follow along. And her faithfulness to continue raising three of my good friends being uh, all throughout childhood in the church and, and in the faith. And I remember her faithfulness. She came before her husband, who was a great guy, an incredible guy, simply did not share the same convictions about the Lord Jesus Christ. And she comes to him and he says, like, this is my faith. I will not compromise my faith. I will be going to the church every single Sunday. I'm going to be bringing my kids along with me. I'm going to be raising them in this thing. And he did not come along. And the story was that not long ago, somewhere around seven, eight years ago, come to find out that after about 30 years of faithfully walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying him first and foremost, this husband had been watching the testimony of his wife and he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, like that's what he's talking about right here. It's the tension you feel when people are going one way and God is calling you to go, to, to go another direction. But church, like that's what he's talking about here. And, and he raises the standard a little bit more in verse 27. He keeps going and he says, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me, like you can't be my disciple. You cannot be a follower of mine. In other words, church, it's not just about your love and loyalty to family and friends. Like it's about obedience to Jesus coming before obedience even to yourself. In other words, like, 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 like it's always Jesus first. He says, you've got to be willing to die to yourself, meaning all of your natural wisdom, all of your sinful desires, like all of your preferences, all of your independence, that he might have total and complete control over every single part of your life. 
I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this, who is a famous German theologian, pastor, and martyr. Uh, But he says this, he says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Jesus Christ and no more of yourself. To see only him who goes before and no more the road behind, which is way too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is Jesus leads the way, and so I stay close with him. I love that line. But church, can we, again, can we just think for a moment about what he's calling us to right here? Like the extent of our obedience to him. Like it is radical. None of this makes sense. It's not common today. Relinquish your independence. Are you kidding me? Like my independence is what I've been fighting for my entire life, right? To die to myself. Like why in the world would anyone want to die to their self? Like why would I ever, like aren't we supposed to be true to ourselves? To to find yourself or to discover your own self-truth? Isn't that how we talk today? I mean, honestly, pay attention to how the things you see online and all around us, like, 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 you ever notice how much we talk about ourselves today? I mean, every single day, I found this online a little while ago, every single day, there's nearly 10,000, or I'm sorry, 10 million selfies that are posted online. Every 10 seconds, 1,000 selfies are posted to Instagram. 75% of all images on Snapchat uh, are selfies. In 2015, 2015, more people died from taking selfies them by shark attacks. In other words, church, like we're literally killing ourselves, being obsessed with ourselves. It's what sociologists are talking about, which I've talked about uh, time and time again. They're calling it the rise of individualism, church. Like this is a modern phenomenon that is the rise of individualism. And it's what secular sociologists are calling the most popular God in America today. I mean, they write about it like this in case we want to understand, like, is this in me? But it says this, the greatest good of individualism is self-actualization. Is any going to sound familiar to you? Where one is able to fully express and act on his or her desires and highest aspirations, whatever they may be. The assumption grounding this belief is that all your desires and inclinations are built into you as a person, and together they constitute your personal identity. So for any social norm or moral tradition or religious tradition, to tell you that your aspirations or your desires should not be pursued. It is the same as telling you that you should not be yourself. Any sort of social or moral framework that does not account for and celebrate an individual's unique desires, inclinations, and aspirations is thus a form of social tyranny. But you're like, that's how we think today, is it not? I mean, you recognize that language all over the place. Like, if you think that I, that I should not pursue something that I want to pursue, like, that's social tyranny. Like, that's what we actually think. And it's what, again, it's what secular people today are calling, this is the most popular God in America today. I mean, there was an article that came out a few weeks back, or I'm sorry, a few years back, talking about the decline in psychotherapy over the past 10 years. Uh, you want to know why there's such a decline? They explain it like this, and they say this. The reasons for the decline are complex, but Dr. Gottlieb focuses on one trend. Psychotherapy involves the long, hard work of facing our own issues, but many people today would rather blame others for their problems. In other words, counselors and psychotherapists used to see patients who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better. Now they see patients who come in because they wanted someone or something else to change. As one of Gottlieb's colleagues, Gottlieb's colleagues put it, I see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change myself. But you're like, that's what happens when self becomes God. Like, that's what happens when you elevate say, self and you put self in the place of God. Like, I'm never wrong. Like, there's nothing that I need to learn. There's nothing that I need to personally repent from. I'm going to listen to a sermon and say, you know what? My wife really should have been here today. 
my friend really should have been here today. My buddy who I know, like they really should have been here today. And there's nothing that I ever really need to repent from today. And what Jesus is saying, church, is like, if you want to see the breakthrough, breakthrough that you cry out for, you want to see the fame of Jesus' name spread to the ends of the earth, then this God of self has got to be broken. I mean, it's how he begins this entire letter. You remember this in, in verse one. Remember how he says this? He says, Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Like, that's how he identifies himself. This is who I am. I'm not identified by my desires. I'm not identified by my background. I'm not identified by any of these things. I'm Paul. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doulos, a bond servant, one who is uniquely intertwined with the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2.20, he's going to say this. He's going to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In other words, like I died with him. My life, myself died with him. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But church, like, like that's how a follower of Christ thinks. That's how a disciple of Christ thinks all of my life, all of my thoughts and my values, my politics, my identity, my purpose, my money, my time, my energy, my politics, everything in there, every bit of who I am is totally and completely surrendered to him. Why? So the fame of Jesus' name can spread all the way around the world. Brian Lawrence tells a story of a woman, I believe it was in his church, I'm not really sure, but he tells a story about a woman named Karen Watson who left a letter with her pastor to read to the church in the case of her death. And uh, she did this just before she went off to serve as a missionary in Iraq. Sure enough, uh, long, uh, not long after she got there, uh, she was gunned to death by radical militants in the country that she was actually trying to serve. And so pastor gets this letter and he opens it up in the wake of her death. And he decides to read it to everybody who's grieving at her funeral. And so he opens up and he reads this and it begins like this. It simply says, you're only reading this letter if I died in the mission field. It went on to include a lot of gracious words to family and friends, a lot of thanks. And then she wrapped it all up at the very end with a little summary saying, to obey was my objective, to suffer was expected, but his glory was my reward. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected, but his glory is my reward. Heather Mercer and Dana Curry, you know what they did uh, after 128 days of captivity with the Taliban? They decided to go back and serve the people that held them captive. The Waco Tribune writes about it, and they talk about how their decision, again, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but they describe the story like this. After a dramatic Hollywood-style helicopter rescue from the first place, Mercer and Curry became celebrities. The Baylor grads, they wrote a book. They released a CD, which students, those are like little round discs, I guess you can, anyway, yeah. They released a CD. They made more than 5,000 appearances in the next 18 months around the country, which is truly incredible. Then both women donated the profits from those ventures to Afghanistan relief efforts, and they left to serve again as missionaries and aid workers in Muslim countries again. She writes about it. She explains it like this, and she says, I, I really felt the burden of what God had allowed through our experiences in Afghanistan. It was not just to have a flash in the pan kind of a story, Mercer said in an interview last week. I thought to myself, well, I don't want to spend my entire life just telling this story. There was a sense that the job that God had for me wasn't quite done. I knew it was a place, I, I knew I was called to places that were in some kind of upheaval, and Iraq just seemed like the next place that he was taking me. And so she went back to the people that held her captive. 
Why? Because she, like Paul, saw herself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doulos, a bondservant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ who understands that obedience is required to see the fame of his name spread to the ends of the earth. And church, quite honestly, that is my hope and my prayer for us today, that this would be a season of brand new obedience for you, not old obedience that's held on to, but brand new obedience for you, that as we work through the book of Romans together, that we would grow strong roots together in the truth of God's word, and that we would see ourselves as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost, and that we would say yes to whatever it is that he's calling us to do, all for the fame of his glorious name. So I want to invite you to pray with me right now. But Father, we do love you and we praise you, God. Lord, we remember that when we were lost and dead in our sins, you gave us grace. You gave us your righteousness and the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do worship you. Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so, Father, I pray right now that you would do a work uh, in us, Lord, today. Would you do a work in us? God, that you would set us free from, uh, from the things that we've been holding on to. Church, I want to invite you to uh, do some reflection right now and just say, Father, what yes have you been calling me into that before today has been a solid no? What yes have you been calling me into that before today has been a solid no? Father, we recognize that you are the king of all kings and you are the Lord of all lords. God, we follow you. We honor you. We long to see your name praised among the nations. So God, would you have your way in us? Would you speak to us today? And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen and amen.